The chapter that we read in Luke chapter 23, and we could read together from verse 44. It was now, verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. I have a friend who recently took part in a long, arduous, grueling race. It was something that she hadn't done before. And she posted on her page on Facebook the following term, feeling accomplished. I don't know whether that indicates that she never expected to finish the race or just the feeling of satisfaction, I guess, that there was having planned all of this and having worked so hard and having got to the end of what she had uh, what she had wanted to do. I don't know how you regard the death of Jesus. For some people, it's simply a historical fact. Nobody can deny that Jesus of Nazareth lived and died at Calvary. They crucified him. It's a matter of history. For other people, the death of Jesus is something of a mystery. They can't quite figure out where it fits in. And furthermore, they can't quite figure out why it is so central or why it is so important that Jesus died and rose again. They'll say something like this. Surely it was the teaching of Jesus that was important. The Sermon on the Mount, the conversations that he had, turn the other cheek, walk the second mile. I remember having a discussion with someone some years ago who was absolutely insistent on this, that it was the teaching. He says, I don't understand why you keep going on about the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus was his unfortunate end. And it plays little or no part in what we really need to be focusing on, which is the teaching of Jesus. Perhaps there's someone here today, and that's the way you think. For you, the death of Jesus is something of an unfortunate accident. But what we want to remember Jesus, according to to that thinking, is for his teaching and for his uh, for his lasting legacy, which is his life and his example, rather than his death. Well, I was going to say I hate to disappoint you. I actually don't hate to disappoint you. But the death is central. It is the central foundation of the gospel. There is no gospel without the death of Jesus. You take away the death of Jesus and you have nothing left. The life of Jesus is of no use whatsoever. If it, if it isn't for his death. And I hope that will become clear in a few moments' time as we, as we bore down into this passage and as we examine afresh. How do you think of the death of Jesus? Well, I want to use the words of my friend. It was an accomplishment. 
And I want us to see, perhaps strangely, that it was an accomplishment in four senses, from four different, slightly different perspectives. This event that took place, this utterly horrific, cruel event that took place, the long, drawn-out, painful death of an innocent man who we believe was the Son of God was actually the greatest accomplishment of all time. But before we get to that, I want us to see how strangely and paradoxically it was an accomplishment for those who hated Jesus. I think sometimes we overlook this when we when we think of Jesus as we know it in terms of his atoning death on the cross. We sometimes miss the, the sheer sense of celebration that there must have been amongst those who absolutely hated Jesus. First of all, the Romans. For them, he was a nuisance. He was a menace. He was a threat to the peace and security which Pilate wanted to preserve at all costs. There was a tense relationship between the Roman governor. The Romans, remember, they were the governing force. They were the occupying force in Palestine. So that meant that when the Jews wanted to try somebody, they had to bring him to the Roman governor. And that put him in an incredibly awkward position. Because Pilate knew it didn't take much examination for him to conclude that Jesus had not done anything worthy of the death penalty. And so he had to make a decision. Am I going to reel through with this? Are the demands, the, the demands of the Jewish ruling leaders? Or am I going to do what I know is the right thing and release this man because he actually hasn't done anything worthy of death? And the shocking thing about this passage, nobody should read this passage without a sense of outrage and shock at the sheer injustice that there is. In a man who has broken no laws and has only done good, and yet he's condemned to death by crucifixion, Because it happens to be expedient for Pilate. He didn't want to follow the Jews. He didn't want uh, his own bad reputation. He didn't want word getting back to Caesar. That he had blundered in some way. And he was prepared to sacrifice his sense of justice. His right sense of justice. Three times he pleaded with them. Look, this man has done nothing wrong. And yet, they prevailed because of their obsessive hatred for Jesus. Nonetheless, when Jesus was, despite Pilate's misgivings, I guess that the, for the Romans, Roman authorities, this was the end of the matter. So they had accomplished their objective. That was the end of it. Or so they thought. Secondly, the Jews. The Jewish ruling leaders, the religious leaders at the time, the Sanhedrin, for them, they had plotted and planned for a long time previously 
the death of Jesus. They had come to the conclusion that there was no other way of getting rid of this man. For them, for the Romans, he was a menace. For the Jews, he was an enemy. For various reasons. For example, there was the way which he challenged their received teaching, their authority. And then there was the way in which he drew a crowd to himself. They were the celebrities of the time. They were the ones who were in authority. They were the ones who expected people to listen to them and to their teaching and to live accordingly. They were the ones in religious power. But now that this Jesus had arisen, he was drawing, there was just something compelling about him. Something that was more than just appealing. They saw that there was an authority in Jesus. That when he spoke, he spoke differently to the scribes and the Pharisees. Because they were, they lived hypocritical lives. And that bred hatred on their part. Jealousy is a most deceitful and powerful force. Something that we all need to be really careful about. Jealousy can destroy a person. And that was certainly the reason why that lay at the very heart of their hatred against Jesus. And so they plotted and they planned his downfall. But they could never rest until that moment when they knew he was dead. Not even when they handed him over to Pilate or where they tried him and condemned him. At any moment in that process, something could go wrong. They couldn't rest until the moment that he bowed his head and they knew that his life was over on, in this world. At any moment, somebody could have stepped in and stood and spoken on his behalf. They really couldn't, they, they, they couldn't figure him out. They knew perfectly well. This is again something that is so shocking about the gospel stories. That they knew that Jesus possessed the most extraordinary power. Power that you couldn't have if you were an ordinary human being. Power to feed 5,000 people. Power to open up the ears of deaf people. Power to raise men and women who were crippled. And open the eyes of the blind. But instead, and this is what I find so shocking, instead of rethinking their whole idea as to who Jesus was and asking, could this really be the Christ? Could this be the, the Messiah that we've been with? Instead of that, they chose to hate him because of their own personal jealousy and their own personal, because he was taking away the attention that they wanted. And the authority that they believed that they had. And so they didn't rest until that moment. When they believed that their plan was now accomplished in his death. So for the Romans, Jesus' death was an accomplishment. For the Jews, Jesus' death was their accomplishment. Now here's where it becomes really intriguing. Because injustice and hatred and jealousy takes place all over the world and always has done. Here's where the death of Jesus becomes quite unique. 
And here's why we want to focus on it on this Sunday morning. Because for Jesus, his death was an accomplishment. Let me say that again. For Jesus, his death was his accomplishment. That was the reason he was born in the first place. He was born in order to die. And Jesus was always aware of that. He said on several occasions, he looked to that place, focused on that point where he knew he would be arrested and when he would be handed over to the Gentiles and when he would be treated with cruelty and abused and mocked and tortured and then eventually, then eventually crucified on a Roman cross. His ministry from the very beginning, from his baptism at the Jordan River, over that three-year period, he knew how it was going to end. Now, we all know we're going to die. Every one of us knows that death will be the end of life as we know it here in this world. We believe that life extends because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We'll see that this evening, God willing. We, but we know that for us, our lives here in this world will come to an end through death, either old age or sickness or or accident, or whatever. But none of us can say that we were born in order to die. Only Jesus could say that the express purpose and his express objective of his life here in this world was to die. And that is because he was, his birth was him being sent into the world. He was always Aware of the way in which he was going to die. You remember in John chapter 10 when he said, I have authority to lay down my life and take it up again. Sure enough, when it did come time for him to die, you remember how his death took place on the cross. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He surrendered his spirit. Every moment of his death, the process of death at Calvary was under his control. At no time was it taken outside of his control. Jesus said, taking it from another perspective, I have finished the work that you have given me to do. He said that to his father in heaven. I have finished the work. I have accomplished it. I have brought it to an end. You remember what he said on the cross. It is finished. Or it is accomplished. The task that was given to me to die has now been completed. It has been brought to an end. So for Jesus, his death was his Accomplishment. But moving on. And perhaps even more intriguingly, and the more you think and the more you reflect on the death of Jesus, the more intriguing it becomes. 
I'm almost tempted to say that I hope there's someone who's perhaps come in here for the first time and you've never really given it much thought. And I hope that, if nothing else, that you've been encouraged to think about what the death of Jesus truly was and how central it is to the Christian faith, how inescapable it is. You can't have the Christian faith without it. And here's why. Because for God, Jesus' death was an accomplishment. For God. Now, I'm not trying not to separate Jesus from God, but I think you'll know the direction I'm, I'm taking this. We're talking about God the Father. You remember, of course, how God is one and God is three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, Christians think of God as one and God as three. That's the way that the Bible clearly reveals God, the being of God in one, one being and, and three persons. It's what we call the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've already looked to a certain extent into how for Jesus, the Son of God, His death was his accomplishment. But now we're moving to the Father. God the Father. Because for him, Jesus' death was his accomplishment. I remember once when I was a very young teenager, um, I I was converted a, a long, long time ago when I was about 12 or 13 years of age. And at that age, you don't understand a whole lot. Well, at least I didn't. But I was still really enthusiastic as a Christian. And I wanted other people to be converted, and I wanted to be involved in as many evangelistic events as was possible. There was a lot of stuff going on in Glasgow at that time. I was brought up in Glasgow. And I remember there was one particular event. There was a march for Jesus. And there was hundreds, in fact, thousands of people took part in this, because... If you go back in the history of Glasgow, there was loads and loads of vibrant churches in Glasgow at that time. So anyway, there was this March for Jesus that was uh, organized. And I decided I would make up this great big banner. I was only 14 or 15 years old and I was going to make up this great big banner. And uh, on this banner said, Jesus loves you. Because in my naivety, I thought, well, that's the greatest truth in the world. Somebody's bound to be converted by seeing this banner. Jesus loves you. My father walked in as I was making this banner. Now, my father was a Presbyterian minister of long standing. And he looked at me and we began this discussion uh, into uh, how useful this banner might be or how, and he used the word superficial. I, I now understand that he was right. But I didn't understand in those days. And during the discussion, I'll never forget this. This happened a long time ago, but I'll never forget this. He said to me, in the heat of the moment, he said, Do you know what the atonement was? And I didn't. There was me, I was ready to preach Jesus to the whole world. I wanted everyone to become a Christian. And I actually didn't know what the cross was about. 
I knew that Jesus had to die. I knew that if he hadn't died, then I wouldn't be forgiven. I knew as much as that. And I guess that's all the thief on the cross knew. But I needed to learn a whole lot more about what the death of Jesus really signified and what it really accomplished. That's what we're talking about this morning. And what we're talking about now is what it accomplished in the presence of God. Because this is all about God. The death of Jesus took place in order to reconcile sinners, people who were lost and hopeless and helpless, people who had become separate from God because of sin. That's what sin did from the very beginning. It brought a separation between us and God. And God, instead of leaving that separation in place, and instead of condemning us to our lostness and to our punishment, He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But this is how He did it. He did it in His death. The death of the Son of God. The death of the beloved Son of God. The death of the human Son of God. The death of the pure and holy Son of God. That's what we're thinking about this morning. The death not just of an innocent man, tragic as that may be, but millions of men and women have died tragically and millions of men and women have died unjust death. We're talking about one unique death. A moment in time when the Son of God Himself, who had become a man, He had become a human being, gave Himself for our sin. And in giving himself, he purchased men and women and boys and girls who were lost and condemned in their sin. Now let me just spend one or two moments thinking about how this worked according to the Bible. Because it's only the Bible that can give us the information about how we can understand this. And the information is this. You go back all the way back to the very beginning of the human race, to Adam and Eve, and how they fell and how they disobeyed and rebelled against God, immediately bringing the sin as an invasion into the human race, and immediately bringing that separation between God and Adam and Eve, in which they were thrust out of the garden and out of the presence of God. And they were condemned to a life that was going to end in death and condemnation. God would have been well within his rights to leave it that way. But he didn't. He came to Adam and Eve. And he provided a way in which they could be forgiven. You remember that moment when they they tried to hide from God because of their nakedness and their shame. And God brought them skins to cover their nakedness. And that's a really, really important point. Right at the very beginning, that's a really important event. You fast forward to Cain and Abel and how Abel, Adam's son, he approached God by bringing a lamb, a sacrifice. 
And that sacrifice was put to death. And it was offered up to God. So that by the death of that sacrifice, Abel's sin would be washed away. Fast forward to Moses in the desert with the people of Israel. And now God is telling people, he's giving them every detail of detail as to how sacrifice. So sacrifice was central. It was unavoidable. It was the way, God's way, in which by the death of an animal, the guilt of the person could be taken by the animal. And by the uh, the death of the animal, God's anger would be removed. Now the fact is that no animal was ever able to take away the guilt of a person. The fact is that every animal sacrifice in the Old Testament, it looked forward to this occasion when the Son of God himself was made sin for us. And when our guilt was placed upon him and when he suffered the wrath of God for us because that's what happened on the cross. When Jesus suffered on the cross, the awfulness of the death that he died. It wasn't just the cruelty of the Romans. It wasn't just the mockings and the hatred and the shame of the Jewish leaders. It was God the Father that was carrying out a once-for-all transaction in which his son became guilty of our sin. I don't understand that. I confess that to you. Because I'm in my 50s. And I've lost count of the amount of shameful things I've done in my life. It's enough in my mind for God, for Jesus to take on my sin. And that's the sin that I know about. That's the sin I can remember. But we're talking here about all of us. If you trust in him, if you follow him as your savior, we're talking about all of God's people. And as he accepted the guilt of our sin, he had to accept its condemnation to the full, the wrath God that we deserved. And Jesus had to go all the way in suffering that wrath. Because in the eyes of God, there is only one penalty for sin. The soul that sins shall die. The wages of sin is death. So Jesus had to go all the way. He couldn't, he couldn't stop short. He had to go all the way until that moment when he bowed his head. When he knew that the price of sin was fully paid and he bowed his head and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That was the moment when our salvation was accomplished by the death of Jesus in the eyes of God. And that was the moment when Isaiah's prophecy came to fulfillment which said it was the will of God to crush him. The will of God to crush him.
There's enough in that to keep us thinking all day, isn't there? How can God allow his only begotten son, the son that he loves, to suffer and to die? How can that happen? There is only one answer. And the other is because through that death, our sin could be forgiven and God could redeem us to himself and restore us to a right relationship with himself, forgiving all, all our uncleanness and our guilt. For the Romans, Jesus' death was their accomplishment. For the Jewish leaders, Jesus' death was their accomplishment. For Jesus, his death was his accomplishment. He did God's will. He carried it out to the full. And for God the Father, who sent Jesus into the world in the first place, This was the moment when his plan of salvation would come to fruition and when his own son would become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And it is in that righteousness, that declared righteousness, that we come together this morning as God's people and we remember his death on the cross with thankfulness we remember it in worship we remember it with in the company of Jesus this is the Lord's table so we do more than just remember his death we join together with one another and we are in the company of the Lord himself sometimes we lose sight of that Of course, the same is true every Sunday. The same is true whenever we come together. We come into the company of God himself. But there's a special sense in which Jesus ministers to us through the sacrament and the word. In that very special sense in which we're able to remember and to grasp afresh what, what Jesus did for us as he gave himself on the cross. It is finished. Our salvation was not just made possible, but our salvation was brought to completion. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven,